Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus once again this morning. Exodus chapter 20 is our passage today as we now find the people of Israel having been delivered from Egypt at the foot of Mount Sinai. And here God will once again continue to make himself known. Well, as you're turning there, I have a little video to show you to introduce uh, our sermon this morning. Can you name ten famous people? Obama, Paris Hilton. Angelina Jolie. Jessica Alba. Van Halen. The Beatles. Julia Roberts. Sherry Bradshaw. Britney Spears. Michael Jackson. Ten stores. Home Depot, Lowe's. Macy's. Yeah. Coach. Victoria's Secret. Jamie Marcus. Payless. J.C. Penney's. That's one. Now, can you name ten brand name beers? Samuel Adams. Samuel Adams. Exodus is very well known uh, and one of the most well known stories in all of scripture the Ten Commandments are not so well known at least uh, for those in our culture Uh, we don't know what they actually are these people don't know they might be familiar with the idea of them maybe it's because of that movie by was it the Charleston Charleston Heston uh, that movie that is always played somewhere around like Thanksgiving Christmas time seems like nowadays uh, or other Hollywood movies they know They're familiar with them, but do they actually know what they are? No, that's a different story. In fact, back in 2007, the USA Today reported that 60% of Americans couldn't name five out of the Ten Commandments. 
Well, 11 years later, I would have to imagine that that percentage has only increased. They've been removed from the walls of our school. They've been removed from the walls of our courtrooms and city halls. Uh, and it seems like they've been moved from our consciences altogether. Though that they're apparently absent from those things, they're also absent from our knowledge. And it's not just because they've disappeared from our walls. It's really because of something deeper. We have a disdain for rules and regulations, don't we? Uh, we don't like rules. We don't like commands. We simply don't like to be told what to do, especially if it's by God. We don't like commands, and we certainly don't want to be accountable to obeying them. And so we'd rather list off all the sports teams and know those by heart than we would the Ten Commandments. Well, as you can imagine, that's where we're at today in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And here, God speaks to his people words that they are to follow. Instead of just following their heart or listening to their gut, as our culture would like to tell us today, uh, they are told to listen to the very words of God. Our culture bristles at this. Even we saw that a little bit last week as we introduced the context into Exodus 20. Our culture says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No rights, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. So just let it go. I'm sorry, now that song's in your mind all day. But did you hear those words? To test the limits, break through, there's no rights, no wrong, and no rules for me. That's what our culture believes. But here, in the passage before us this morning, the people of Israel hear from God, hear commands from his lips. And this is following a remarkable declaration over them from God, as we saw last week. They've heard from God through Moses the reiteration of his covenant that he made with his forefather Abraham. And they declare that they are his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. Last week we saw God's redemptive love has shaped the people of Israel's identity and has informed their mission. And so with that context set, now we have the law. God's commands that set them apart from the other nations. And so here... God speak to his people in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. 
Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be for you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Again, this is where God is revealing himself to his people and to us. So before we study, let's thank him for this word. Father, this morning we are, are grateful that you have chosen to, spoke, to speak to us through your word. And that has been saved from generation to generation, so that even this morning, thousands of years removed, we can open it up and it still speaks. And God, this morning, we need your spirit to go to work in our hearts to speak through your word. And Father, I need your spirit to speak through me, to speak into me this morning through your word. And so, God, there has been distractions throughout this week. There's been various things that have gone on in each one of our lives and our families' lives. So, God, may we just take this moment to, to quiet our hearts and to listen intently to your voice. As you give these commands, and in these commands, you show us more of yourself. In your name, amen. Well, so far in this story, we've seen God's grace being poured out over and over and over again to his people. Though they have this ongoing struggle with trusting his wisdom and ways, he's provided for them, protected them, and has continued to keep his promises. Remember back in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, we heard this. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God has been present with his people, even though... As we've read the first 18 chapters, often his presence isn't all that apparent, at least to them. But we've recognized that he's always been there, and he's had everything under control. But now, here in Exodus 20, we'll begin to experience, or they will begin to experience his presence like never before. His presence will not only be felt through thunder and seen through the lightning that we just read of in verses 18 and 19, but his people will encounter him through his life-giving commands. For remember, he's brought them out of Egypt to himself so that they might know him and then make him known to all nations. And they will do so by hearing his voice and obeying his commands. You see, these Ten Commandments, or as the Hebrew would call it, Ten Words, reveal God's character to his people. And they also reveal God's heart for them. They're not simply all that the Israelites are to do, nor are they commands to obey in order for them to be set free from slavery. Remember, they've already been set free from slavery. 
No, these are commands given to allow Israel to know God more fully and to experience the freedom of living in his good ways. And so what we find here in this passage this morning is that God's commands draw us closer to him and push us toward others. They draw us closer to him and knowing him and standing in awe or fear of him. But they also push us out toward others. As we heard this morning from Psalm 16, God's commands are what make known to us the path of life that lead us into God's presence where there is fullness of joy. In fact, the psalmist is so captured by the law and the commands of God that elsewhere he writes this, Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Uh, That's quite a bit different from our world and often our hearts towards God's commands. Turn to me and be gracious, he continues, to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people... Do not keep your law. The psalmist is passionate about God's commands because he knows that in the commands he finds the path of life. He says this about the law of God precisely because he loves God and he's experienced God's love toward him. For when you know, truly know, the deep and abiding love of God for you, In spite of all your failures, as the psalmist and even as the Israelites have come to know, God's commands bring freedom. They bring freedom to his people because they truly are the path of life. So this morning, as we come to Exodus 20, we want to hear from God the path of life, the good and righteous way that we are to live in. The reality is we could take 10 weeks to study these 10 commandments here. We could take 10 weeks and each week look at each one of these commands, but we're not going to do that. We might actually do that in the spring. Uh, There's been a new resource that Kevin DeYoung has put out for small groups on this very uh, issue of the Ten Commandments, and so we might do that. But this morning, I want to spend some time focusing primarily on gaining a fuller understanding of how God's commands draw us to himself by looking first at the first four commandments this morning. Next week, we'll look at the the following six commandments. But here in these first four commandments, we see a call for covenant loyalty. That his people would be loyal to his covenant in three various ways. In exclusive worship, in unrivaled love, and absolute trust. That God's people would exclusively worship him. That they would have an unrivaled love for him. And they would place their absolute trust in him. And as we hear these life-giving commands from God this morning, I pray that our response would be the same response that Israel is called to at the end here in verses 20. That we would have an intense pursuit of knowing God and obeying his words. That we would fear him so that we might not sin. 
So let's look, first of all, at God's call for covenant loyalty in exclusive worship. But note first how God once again sets up the basis. If you look at verse 1 and 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So before he gets to showing them the commandments, he reminds them again, as he has just done in chapter 19, of what and who he is. It's not just something for us to skim over to get onto the commands, verse 1 and 2 here, show us who God is and why the Israelites should obey him. He is the Lord. Remember, we've been introduced to this before in Exodus 3 and 4, where Moses came into God's presence through the burning bush. He is Yahweh, the great I Am, the one who covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the Almighty, the Sovereign One. He is the one that showcased his power and authority throughout the plagues in Egypt. He is the one who, with that simple breath of air, just split the Red Sea and then crushed the pursuing Egyptian armies. He is the Lord, your God. He is their God. He is making it known to them that he is their God. It's a reminder that they are his treasured possession, who has brought them out of the land of Egypt. He's acted on their behalf, delivering them from opposition and affliction, out of slavery, so that he might bring them to himself, as we saw last week. God is once again reminding them of who he is and his deep and abiding love for them. And Kevin DeYoung writes, the law is an expression then of the lawgiver's heart and character. The commandments not only show us what God wants, they show us what God is like. They say something about his honor and his worth, his majesty. They tell us what matters to God. This is a God of absolute power, not a capricious tyrant. Not some cranky deity who wields raw and unbridled authority without any regard for his creatures. No, he is the Lord, your God. He is a personal God. And so it's this covenant relationship with God that, as we saw last week, sets the basis for these commandments here in verses 3 through 11. God has reminded them that his covenant with them, that he has shown his loyalty by his faithfulness to them over and over again. So now he calls for their loyalty to him. And notice the first command. You shall have no other gods before, or we could say besides me. See, God's very nature demands this. He is the one and only God. Now this commandment here doesn't suggest that there are other gods, but that there is only one supreme divine being who alone is to be worshipped. There are no other gods. All other gods are imitation. In Deuteronomy 6, where Moses summarizes these Ten Commandments for the next generation, he restates this command in verse 4. And he says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is, God is the one true God, and there are no other gods. Yet, as we've already seen throughout this story, the fallenness of mankind is clearly evident in their misplaced worship and false imitation gods. Israel's not only seen that throughout the years of slavery in Egypt, but they've also been tempted to turn turn back to these false gods themselves. But God says, I alone am to be worshipped. 
He is to be worshipped exclusively. Now, I think it's safe to say that this command here that he starts off with is not all that popular in our world, is it? We live in a day and age of all-inclusive tolerance. We need to be acceptant. Accept we need to accept everyone to hold the exclusivity of, of exclusivity of God is then seen to be just an open invitation to have the, the labels of bigot and extremist. See, the world that we live in fundamentally rejects this first commandment, and so it's no wonder they don't want to know the rest of them. They reject that God alone is to be worshipped. All religions basically say the same things. We should be good people, treat others well, and seek after God. So all roads lead to the top of the same mountain. So I get cut off on arguing one belief system over another. Have you heard something like that before? Uh, you heard your coworkers, your neighbors say that? Oh, that certainly sounds like a charitable thing to be tolerant and accept others' religions and opinions. But notice here that God doesn't just simply state an opinion. Uh, this command is not a conjecture. God has proven this over and over to the people of Israel, that he alone is God. Therefore, their covenant loyalty to him must be seen in their exclusive worship of him. Well, as we continue on in this list of ten, we also hear God's call for covenant loyalty and unrivaled love. Not only are they to exclusively worship God, but they are to love him Above all, notice how this second command in verse 4 actually expands the first. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Well, not only is Israel not to have any other gods, but as they worship the one true God, they're not to make images in any form to represent or symbolize him as they worship him. One commentator notes, part of this command is to prevent Israel from identifying the true God with any created thing. To identify God with any created thing is merely one step from thinking of God in terms of that image. It would be creating God in the image of his creation, which would put Israel's God then on par with the other quote-unquote gods of other nations. So you see, God's not only calling for their loyalty to him alone, but explaining that this loyalty, this exclusive worship, should be seen in a certain way. And this will set them apart from other nations who worship created things. Uh, this is an extremely important aspect that we can't miss here. You see, this is how Israel as a holy nation, will show that they're distinct from other nations. They would be distinct because they worship God and him alone, but they would do so without any idols to represent him. And that would stand as a, a blaring witness to the nations around them of who the one true God is. And verse 5 continues to explain Further, the reason for this command, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, God is jealous that the worship he calls for is not to be shared at all with others. He cannot bear to share his glory with another. For in doing so, it would cheapen his glory. It would be like an Olympian having to share the gold medal that he or she rightfully won with the top athlete in that country hosting the Olympics, no matter what sport or event it would be. Or like at the end of the baseball season, the World Series trophy being given to both teams to share off and on, even though the one rightfully won that trophy. And we would all say to that, wait a minute, that's not fair. I mean, that's just not right. You see, God is not to share glory with another. But you see, God isn't even in a competition with another. He has no rivals. He alone is worthy. And so when we give his glory to another, it's not just unfair or not right, it's blasphemy. You see, God is so earnest that his glory be known that as the verse continues, any false love or any false worship will bring one thing, a curse. And this is how serious God is about his glory. And just as we saw with the Amalekites, his judgment is relenting on those who hate him, who raise their fist against him. Yet he also shows us what happens for those who obey this command. For those who demonstrate their love by obeying his commands, he says he will bless them through the pouring out of his steadfast love. Remember, we've heard that phrase before, said in chapter 15. It's a love that's not just emotional and fluttery heart kind of love, but an unconditional love of the will. He has promised, he has covenanted, he has said, I do to his people. And so when his people love him by obeying his commands, he pours out more of his steadfast love on them. Now, even though it's already been implied in this book so far, here is actually the first mention of a response of love for God from his people in the book of Exodus. And notice what God does here. He's making this explicit connection between loving and obeying him. For you see, loving God is foundational to our obedience to him. In order for us to obey, we love. As a matter of fact, it's a prominent feature in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses, when he calls the next generation of Israelites to faithfully love God by obeying him, unlike the generation before, unlike those who are receiving these commands, he reminds them over and over again that love and obedience are connected. He says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Then again in 10, 12 through 13, he says, And now Israel, what does the Lord of God, Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And we could actually go throughout the, the rest of the book of Deuteronomy and point out the vital connection between obedience to God's law and love for him. And so he, we see in Deuteronomy, we see in Exodus, that our love for God always manifests 
itself in obedience to him. When we love, we obey. But don't forget, God was the one who initiated this relationship with his people. He loved them first. And so the logical response to his love is that they would love him in return. His redemption of them rightfully ignited in them love for him. He redeemed them. He brought them to himself. He called them his treasured possession. And so in love they obey. Their covenant loyalty would not only be seen in exclusive worship, but be evident in their unrivaled love for him. Then as we come to the third and fourth commandments, we hear a call for covenant loyalty in their absolute trust of him. These commands continue. We notice next that their worship of and love for God leads them to a proper use of his name. Or we could say to to an absolute trust of who he is. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, I think most of us who have grown up in the church have probably heard this command has has heard that this command has something to do with our language, uh, foul language, or using the Lord's name in a, a specific way. But really, the heart behind this commandment is the idea that God must not be co-opted. Or to say it another way, we must not presume upon God. Presume upon who he is. Thinking of him as merely being at our beckoning call, and so we can, so to speak, Name him and claim it. So we attach God's name to whatever we need or so desire. To do so would be to use his name in an unfitting manner. To use his name in vain. It would make God our servant. Nor are we to exploit his authority and power by using his name in order to manipulate or coerce others. For that also would be using his name in vain. Yet, for the people of Israel, they would have seen this happen before with other gods. It would have been quite common for other nations to do this with their gods. In fact, Tim Chester points out, under Pharaoh's rule, the gods were generally used to support the powerful. And so, Pharaoh would use the name of gods to coerce and to manipulate those underneath him. He would put that viper on his crown, which was symbolic of Pharaoh himself being a god and the god serving Pharaoh. Pharaoh having the power of the gods inside of him, which then he would use to manipulate. And if we're honest, though, as we think about that, that's the base compulsion of mankind, isn't it? We inherently want God to serve us. We would want God to do whatever we want him to do. And so often, even in our prayers, we take God's name in vain, attaching it to what we want. Oh, God, that is some sweet car. Would you give that to me? (coughs) Now, what we've just made, God is our servant. We have asked for our needs. You could say we trust ourselves more. We trust our ways, our own thoughts, our own plans. And so we seek to make God follow us. Bend 
to our will and ways, to carry out our plans. And so with this command, God's not just saying, watch your language. He's saying, watch your heart. Know who you're trusting in. Is your loyalty to me and your absolute trust of me and my good and righteous ways? Or are you trying to use my name to coerce others, to manipulate the situation? Leads us then to the fourth commandment. It again expresses their covenant loyalty to God. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. We noted this a couple weeks ago when we were studying chapter 17, that this is not a new concept for Israel, this idea of Sabbath. In fact, even here, we have this reference back to this rhythm having been established by God as he created for six days, and then he rested on the seventh. Both in chapter 17 and here in chapter 20, then, God is reiterating that that they need to trust him. And they trust him by by giving to him a day. By resting in faith in God's gracious provision. Again, this would be a pattern that would distinguish them from the nations. They would be set apart from the other nations by taking a day to rest. For it's not normal to rest from work, is it? And we see that in our world. You work, you work, you work. Even when you aren't working, you feel like you're working because you're getting the emails and the the various uh, calls. As a matter of fact, the mantra in that day, among other nations, is the one like we use today. Work, 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 so you can consume, consume, consume. And do so until the life is completely out of you. Work, 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 work. Why do we do that? Because our identity is so wrapped up in our performance and our value. By what we do, isn't it? We work, and we work, and we work to show we have some sort of worth and value in this life. At least, that's what our culture keeps telling us, and we keep on believing. We work rather than resting, rather than trusting what God has said about us. And so we seek to make our own name by our work. And in doing so, we completely ignore the fact that without doing anything notable or Deserving, God has called us his treasured possession. That's an identity to rest in. And that's what he's calling them to here. They know who he is. They know who they are as his treasured possession. And so he says, rest. Rest in this. Trust in me that I have provided and I will provide for you. So you see what, what God's doing here with the first four commandments, is that he's calling for their covenant loyalty to him and their worship, their love and trust of him. He said, I've showed myself faithful and loyal to you. Now in love, show your loyalty to me. I am the one and only God to be worshipped. Love me with all that you have and trust me. He's not just setting out restrictions for his people here. He's setting a path of life. He's setting a path that will draw them continually back to him. Friends, this is our God. And this, these here are words of life for us as well. 
He calls us to an exclusive worship, an unrivaled love and an absolute trust in him as well. For when Jesus Christ was asked by the Pharisees, which is the greatest commandment in the law, he responded by saying this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Well, as we continue the story in Exodus, we see that the people of Israel not too much longer fail, don't they? And then as we go into the New Testament, we see Jesus show up on the scene and say he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and give us this command again. Yet we know that just like the Israelites, we too fail. We too give ourselves over to other false imitations. We give ourselves to false love and false trust in ourselves. Yet Christ fully keeps these commands for us. So that first John would say, those who love him, that there would be There would be freedom in obeying him because God showed his love first in sending his son to be that propitiation, that payment for our sins. And so when we are redeemed, that ignites a love and a passion for the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And see, the context here that these commands come is grace. They have been redeemed, and so now they are to live in this way. So too, those of us, this side of the cross, live in the context of God's grace. As we've turned in faith and repented of our sins, he gives us commands to live as well. He asks for our exclusive worship. He asks for our unrivaled love and our absolute trust. So does God have your exclusive worship? How does your life prove that you worship him and him alone? Oh, it certainly looks like it This what, here on Sunday mornings. I mean, you're here. It looks like you're worshiping God. But what about Monday? What about Tuesday? What about Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Does your life prove that you exclusively worship God? Does God have your unrivaled love? Does your life prove that? Again, our lips may say so, but does our time, does our money, does our passion, do we have an absolute trust in God? Does our life prove it? Or do we, uh, do we trust ourselves more? Do we trust our performance rather than the performance of the one who truly mattered, who gave his life for us, to graciously provide us all things. Does God have your all? Well, in closing, listen to Kevin DeYoung once again as he helpfully reminds us of this. Salvation is not the reward for obedience. It's clear here in Exodus. It's clear throughout all of Scripture. Salvation is the reason for obedience. Jesus does not say if you obey my commandments, then I will love you. Instead, he first washes the feet of the disciples and then says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, all of our doing is only because of what he has first done for us. 
all of our obedience is only because of what he has first done for us. We love him. We obey him because he first loved us. And so as we go this morning, having heard these commands, may it not just be, oh, I need to memorize the commands. No, may we be a people who are known for our pursuit of knowing the God of these commands, obeying his words and living obedient to his commands as we walk the path of life he has set. Father, this morning, I pray that that would be the case for each and every one of us. Because of Jesus, these commands have been fulfilled once and for all, but yet we still are given the commands to follow because this is the path of life. And so Jesus demands our exclusive worship. Jesus demands our unrivaled love and our absolute trust. But those demands are, are good because they come with, hearts, with a heart of grace and love. And so because you first loved us, may, may you stir within us a love and a love that would be seen in our obedience. God, I pray that if there's someone here this morning that throughout their life have always felt the commands of God to be suffocating and crushing to them. So maybe even this morning as they, they look at this and they, they only read this through the context of, of the law and, um, and a God who is just always coming down on them. God, I pray that you would hear your voice through this. Hear your love in these commands. And that they would turn in faith to you to a loving Father who welcomes them into the family, who pours out love over and over and over again on them. And so God, may, may you even do this morning the work of showing our sin, of showing need of a Savior, and, and that one turning in faith, running to you. God, teach us as a people to know and obey you so that we might continue to walk in your good ways.